Good morning, family. It's great to see all of you here this morning. We are in a sermon series that we started and that we've been in throughout the Lent uh, called The Cruciform Life. Uh, And what we're looking at in this series, the big idea of this series is, is that the cross is not just the place where Jesus died, but the cross also shows us how to live, that Jesus calls us to take up our cross daily. And that this upside-down way of servanthood and death to self is actually the way to true flourishing life, the cruciform life. So today, we come to what may be the most famous chapter in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 on love. And so we're looking at this theme of cruciform love. We're actually going to spend two weeks on this text because it really is the apex of this book, and it's vital to understand it if we understand Paul's argument. So let's pray as we go to God's Word. Our Father, we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit who is present with us now, and we need him. We need his grace. We need his power. I need it. I need the power of the Spirit today. I pray for grace for me and for all of us that we will not just understand what your word is saying, but that we'll have the power to respond to it with obedience and love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear God's word, friends, from 1 Corinthians 12. This is God's word. It is true. It is given to each of you in love. Paul writes, And yet I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I might boast, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Now, these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. People of God, this is the word of the Lord. So we have a problem when we come to this passage. We hear it read, we're looking for the bridesmaids. Right? Where, where's the flower girl? Where's the ring bear? We have heard this read at so many weddings. We've seen it written in lovely flowing calligraphy sold for $12 on Etsy. In the half bath, actually in my house growing up, these verses were cross-stitched, you know, a little embroidery with little hearts and flowers hanging in a little frame in, in, in the powder room. So sweet. So inspiring, right? And 
This could very well be one of the most familiar and most famous passages, maybe just rivaled by Psalm 23. And for that reason, it is dangerous. It's a dangerous passage for us because we assume we know what it means. We are in danger of completely missing what this chapter is actually about. Paul was not taking a break from his strongly worded letter to the Corinthians to write a little sentimental poem about love. This is rather the climactic argument in a damning case against a young church in which he is attempting to show them that in all of their religious activity, they have catastrophically missed the point. He is calling them back, back from the ways of Corinth, back from the the way of wisdom of the world, and he is calling them to the way of the cross, the cruciform way, the cross-shaped way. And that's what this whole series is about, that the cross is showing us how to live. The cross is showing us the secret of what it means to live a good and flourishing life. So many of the things that we normally use to assess what makes for a good and successful life, Paul says, are wrong and meaningless. And he is now bringing this argument to a climax in this chapter by showing them that the great authenticating mark to spirituality, the great authenticating mark to a real and living church is love. Only love. It is so simple, friends, and yet it is so profound. We need to hear this because we may be missing the point every bit as much as they were. Okay? So let's hear this together. Here's my chief idea for today. Love is the supreme authenticating mark of the cruciform life. Love, the supreme authenticating mark of the cruciform life. Let's look at these three things together. First, the necessity of love. Why Paul is emphatic that love makes everything meaningful. Second, the nature of love. What is it? What is love, according to Paul? And then finally, the way to love, how we actually get it. So first, let's look at the necessity of love. Look first with me at the first three verses of this chapter. Paul is here continuing on his discussion from chapter 12, which is all about spiritual gifts. Now, I did not include a sermon on chapter 12 in this series because I preached a sermon on chapter 12 back in the fall on October 15th. Uh, if you'd like to hear one, you can go back and listen to that. Uh, we talked then, if you, so those of you who were here can remember, about how the Corinthians were preoccupied with spiritual gifts. They were very interested in them. We talked about how they were acting like super chickens. Do you remember that metaphor? If you have no idea what I'm talking about, go back and listen. Super chickens. They were, they were pecking at each other. They were competing for position and jostling uh, against each other. And they were especially absorbed in those visible and dramatic spiritual gifts like speaking in tongues and words of knowledge and prophecy, the the impressive gifts. That's how they were measuring their own importance. So Paul, what he's doing here in these three verses, he's continuing his argument from chapter 12, and he takes a few of these gifts that they most valued, and he amplifies them to the maximum degree. So look with me at verse 1. He says, okay, you think speaking in tongues is impressive? Let's say you could speak in the tongues of angels. You could talk to all the most amazing and numinous heavenly beings. Let's say prophecy, you're so gifted that you have access to the great mysteries of the universe, the great profundities that no human being has ever known, you know, pulsars and dark matter and magnetic lunar fields and what happens to my missing socks in the dryer, which I don't understand. <laughs> let's, say, let's say you have access 
access to these great profundities of the universe, he says, the gift of prophecy. And faith, you have amazing acts of faith. You have faith so strong that you could just bang, move a mountain, heal a person, change circumstances, great acts of faith. And then he moves on to service. He says, let's say you give, you're so committed to justice and mercy that you give everything away and you live in voluntary poverty among the poor. Or let's say you are so committed to the, the conviction of your faith that you are willing to go to death, go to the lions, go to the stake, be burned, become as a martyr. All of these things are things that the Corinthians valued that they put their identity in, that they thought were important and impressive about themselves. And Paul says, if you were to have all of this, everything you most value, to the ultimate maximum degree, you have all of that and you have not love, you're nothing. You're nothing. And notice, he doesn't say, you're not quite there. Or, you just missed it by a smidge. Or, you just missed the mark. No. He says, you're a resounding gong. An empty noise, a zero, an echo, a nothing. Anything minus love equals nothing. That's Paul's math in this chapter. Anything minus love equals nothing. Love is the supreme mark of spirituality. What shows the legitimacy of your faith, friends, what shows the legitimacy of a community is not how much we know, not our biblical knowledge, not our doctrinal knowledge, not our spiritual activity, not how much you give away, not how much you do, not how much you serve or accomplish, not how impressive of a reputation you have, not your giftedness, not the deep emotion that you feel when you worship God, not the, you know, not the severe discipline that you practice in your everyday life. None of these things in themselves mean anything. The only true measurement of a life is love. Anything minus love equals nothing. Nothing. You know, I was think, when I was writing this sermon, I was thinking about... Um, when I was applying for colleges, I know a lot of you guys, some of you here have just done that, been through that nonsense, and it's so difficult. And, uh, and, and, and you know, you're junior, senior, you're, you're trying to get ready to apply to all these different colleges. And I was doing all of this stuff. You know, I was volunteering as a big brother at the local boys and girls club, and I was a youth group leader, and I was volunteering at the food bank, and I was, you know, spending time in the nursing home. And I didn't even like this stuff. Why was I doing it? I was doing it to build a resume. I was doing it not for love, certainly not for love. I was doing it for myself, to build a resume so I could really go to a good college and so that I could be successful and have the kind of life that I wanted to live. Impressive acts of service done solely for the self. Paul looks at this Corinthian church he sees all of these people who are active and smart and spiritual and busy, doing all this impressive things, starting ministries, starting nonprofits, doing all this amazing stuff. And beneath all of it, he says, vanity, emptiness, self-centeredness, insecurity, envy, boasting, pride, condescension, rudeness, crankiness, impatience. You think you're something? He says, you have nothing. You'd been better off if you had not even accomplished anything at all, because then at least you would not be deluded into thinking that you were something. Because anything minus love equals nothing. Do you see what I mean about how this passage is not actually inspirational? Uh, <laughs> it's, actually, it's actually terrifying. If you hear this read at a wedding, you should just start screaming, run away, right? It's just saying that the measure of my life, the measure of your life is love. The measure of my life is not how impressive of a preacher I am in this pulpit. 
The measure of my life is not, you know, what I can do or build or do. The measure of my life is what comes out of me when I'm running carpool. That is scary, friends. That is scary. Do you see what I mean, right? This is the stark truth that this text puts before us. How are you measuring your life? What counts for you? What metric are you using to assess whether your life has value, whether you've lived a life of significance? Think of what you most want. Think of what you strive after the hardest. Think of what you dream of most. Paul says you could have that. You could accomplish that. You could be the most successful, the most brilliant, the most gifted, the best reputation, the most spiritual person, the most admired person, and in the end, completely miss the point. Completely miss the point, have nothing. You know, as a pastor, I have the privilege of sitting with people at the point of death, and I have never had a person say, you know, as they were dying, say, hey, bring me my stock portfolio. I really just want to look at it one more time. I just want to look at my assets one more time. No one has ever said, no one has ever said hey, bring me my uh, trophies and my plaques and that business award that I won. I really just want to gaze upon it one last time. Now, what do people say? They say, bring me my son, who I've not spoken to in two years. Bring me my family, who I need to reconcile with. That's, that's what people say. The greatest purpose of life is to become a person who knows how to love. Everything else is secondary. Is love your deepest labor? Is it your main business above all things in your goals? Is learning how to love at the top of your list? Is your work driven by love? If you run a business, what's your bottom line? Is it profit or is it love? Are your ambitions driven by love? Are your politics driven by love? For those of us who are parents, are we absorbed with parenting and raising children who are successful by the measures of the world, or is our greatest striving to see our children become humans who love? Who love? Our church, very gifted, very active, very generous. Scary, friends. How are we measuring our success as a church? By how much we give away, how much we do, how many people come to our worship, how many programs are... And we never measure our church by anything but love. That we are those who give ourselves in love. Love is the supreme mark of whether we are living a life that actually matters. Anything minus love equals nothing. Your life will be measured by love. So that's why it's so important. Because without it, your life is meaningless. But let's ask this question then. What is love? If it's so important, what is it? And that is not a question we often ask because we assume that we know what love means but maybe we don't. It was very interesting to me that in 2016, the most read and shared article of the New York Times was an article by an author and philosopher named Alain de Baton called Why You Will Always Marry the Wrong Person. <laughs> Why You Will Always Marry the... Now, this is 2016. There were a couple of other things that happened in 2016 that were significant. You know, there's a presidential election and all that, you know. But the most popular, most read article, he was addressing our misunderstanding of love. He was writing about our modern notion of love, birthed in the Romantic era, cultivated the last couple hundred years, grounded in this idea that there is a perfect being that exists who can meet all of my needs and satisfy my every yearning. It is a feelings-based idea of love oriented around the fulfillment of the self. This is how we define love. And if you don't think that that's true, just go up to any person on the street today and ask them how they define love and see what they say. I was in a doctor's office and there was like a little book in the waiting room 
that had like things kids say about various topics, very cute. And there was one chapter that said, had things kids say about love. And I wrote some of them down because I thought they were funny. Um, John, age nine, said, like, love is like an avalanche and you have to run for your life. <laughs> such wisdom, you know, age nine, such wisdom. Um, Manuel, age eight, said, I think you get shot with an arrow or something and the rest of it after that is not supposed to be as painful. And um, May, age nine, I like this one. She said, I'm not sure why it happens, but I heard it has something to do with how you smell, and that is why perfume and deodorant are so popular among adults. <laughs> I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not saying these things to make fun of kids. I, I, I'm saying this because this shows that the kids, just like all of us, have drunk the Kool-Aid. That in our culture, when you say love, we do not think, like the ancients, of a virtue that is to be cultivated or a habit that is to be practiced but rather it's something that happens to you. It's involuntary, right? It just comes upon you like a ditch that you fall into or a virus that you catch. You see this, you know, perfect person and it just happens to you. And our entire modern notion of relationships and marriage and really all kinds of relationships is predicated on this vision of love, which then requires that the original feelings of love continue and that the deep personal fulfillment you felt at the beginning is sustained. And De Baton says this is destroying our society, destroying marriage, destroying life. Now, De Baton is an atheist, and yet he grasps something that the great majority of us miss, even believers. And he's not just, I, I, even though he is speaking about romantic love, I think it has far applications to all kinds of relationships, all kinds of loves. Our modern notion of love is a self-centered vision of love that is oriented around personal need. A self-centered vision of love that is oriented around personal need. And this should be no surprise to Christians. Martin Luther, we just celebrated the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Martin Luther famously said, the definition of a human being is what? Homo inse incurvatus, which is Latin that means man turned in upon himself. That's the essence of sin, self-centeredness. Persons turned in upon themselves. And, and, and we turn anything in upon ourselves, even love, even relationships, even other people. Even the best relationships can be distorted so that they actually become about you. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Four Loves, wrote this. The desire we often call love on earth, they recognize in hell as hunger. Hunger, ego hunger. We'll say, I love you, but what we really mean maybe is, I love the way you make me feel. The butterflies that we often associate with falling in love may actually be the flattery of having someone take interest in you. The excitement is the feeling of having someone else meet my needs. I love to be with people who affirm me. So I love you often means I need you to love me. And what this means is that we often define love, it may just be actually using another person to satisfy the cravings of my inner emptiness, to give me the attention and to fill up that hungry ego that we talked about a few weeks ago. This vision of love could be summed up by this mantra, your life for mine. This person, this church, this friend, whatever it might be, exists to satisfy my own longings. And so you can imagine what happens when this is the vision of love. You get together with someone that seems wonderful and that seems perfect. Oh, this is the relationship that will be the right one. This is the marriage that will be the right marriage. Oh, this is the friend, or this is the church that'll finally be the church that isn't messed up. <laughs> this is the small group that finally isn't going to have like weird, messed up people, right? And sooner or later, 
the inevitable reality begins to happen of sin and selfishness and pain and betrayal, and the original feelings of love begin to dissipate, and the sense of fulfillment begins to wane, and we wonder, what went wrong? What went wrong? But here's what de Baton says. Nothing is wrong. What's wrong is your definition of love. He writes this, instead of swapping your partner or your friend or your church, we need to swap this romantic definition of love for an awareness that every human will frustrate, anger, annoy, madden, and disappoint us, and we will do the same to them. There will be no end to our sense of emptiness and incompleteness, but none of this is unusual or is grounds for divorce. Listen to this. Choosing who to commit ourselves to is merely a case of identifying which particular variety of suffering you would most like to sacrifice yourself for. (laughs) Which variety of suffering, friends? (laughs) Man, God has given this guy some common grace. Has he not? What's wrong is your definition of love. He's affirming without knowing it this ancient biblical view of love that Paul articulates here and that the Bible affirms again and again that in contrast to your life for mine, Paul builds a vision of love here that says, my life for yours. My life for yours. And he gives 16 descriptions of this kind of love in verses four through eight. We will look at them next week in detail together. But I would love for you to study them this week. I would love for you to take verses four through eight And look at them, study them, meditate upon them, ruminate upon them, hold them up like a mirror before yourself. And I think what you will find is that they have many things in common. First, they are not need-based, they are commitment-based. Second, they are not grounded in feelings, they are grounded in habit and acts of the will. Third, they are not oriented around personal fulfillment, but they are oriented around the benefit of the other. And above all, what you will find is that each of these practices of love that Paul names requires death. Death. Death to that part of me that lives for myself and my own desires. Death to my desire for an untroubled, happy life. Death to the desire to call attention to my successes. Death to the need, my own need for revenge and retribution. Death for my desire for attention and glory. Death to the dominance of my own preferences. Death to my need for comfort. Death for my desire for a pain-free life. Every single one of these practices of love requires death. And that's why it's cruciform love. Because it is love in the way of Jesus, and it is the only, ironically, it is the only kind of love that will not lead to despair, but will lead to life. My life for you. Cruciform love. So we've seen the necessity of love. Why it's so vital. We've seen what love is, according to Paul. Not your life for mine, which is how we live so much of our lives, but my life for you, my life for yours. But finally, how can we get it? What is the way to this love? If this is indeed the great meaning of our existence, giving our lives and love for God and neighbor, how can we do this? Well, let me, I don't have much time here, so let me just give you a quick three-step plan to become a person who loves, okay? First, admit your failure, Admit your failure. The first thing you have to do is sort of counterintuitive to recognize that you don't know how to love. A couple of years ago, I played in a parent-teacher basketball game at my kid's school, um, and we had some practices before the game, and one of my friends was there. His name's Percy. You all remember Percy? Um, now, per- Percy is not uh, indirect. Uh, and so he came up to me when we were practicing, and he said, dude, you suck. 
sorry, that, I'm sorry, but that's what he said. And I said, excuse me? And he said, you don't know how to shoot, dude. And I was like, well, I, I had a basketball growing I mean, basketball goal in my house growing up. Like, I've been shooting all my life. I think I know how to shoot. He's like, you don't know how to shoot. That's why you're missing so many baskets. Now, if I had said, I do know how to shoot. I know how to shoot a basketball. I know how to play. And just kept on shooting the way that I was shooting, I would never have become the amazing basketball player I am today. Um, <laughs> actually, there's not been a whole lot of improvement. But what I will say is it took, it took, it took self-humiliation. It took me being able to say, yeah, you're right. I don't know how to shoot. I don't know how to play basketball, and I need you to show me the way. Paul begins this text in 1 Corinthians by saying, I will show you a more excellent way, the way that you don't know, the way that you've lost. He's pulling back the curtain and showing that they have lost the point, and they don't know how to love. And so the first requirement of learning to love, counterintuitively, is to admit you don't know how to love. And to say, yep, it's true. So much of what I do is for the wrong reasons. So many of even the good things I do are actually done for myself. And my own life is so far from the description of love in this chapter. I think I contravened all 16 of them just like yesterday. Just ask my family. (laughs) So this passage is, first of all, a rebuke. It is calling us to go the cruciform way Because the way down is the way up. And the way to victory is the way of admission of need. So first, admit your failure. Second, go to school. Here's what's great about this kind of love. Because it isn't feeling-based, and because it isn't sort of an attribute of your personality, it can be learned. It can be practiced. Debaton writes in this article, listen to this, compatibility is an achievement of love, not its precondition. Isn't that an amazing phrase? Compatibility what we often think you need to have love. Compatibility is the achievement of love, not its precondition, which means love is work. Love is labor. You can actually work on love and get to a place of unity and and compatibility. And Augustine called the church the school of charity, the school of love, the community in which we learn how to love again, this eclectic group of incompatible people. Thanks be to God that Jesus brought together by his grace, we now strive in our differences and our brokenness to learn the way of love. This is our chief calling, not to just teach each other more doctrinal or biblical knowledge, but to actually show each other the way of love. We're called to learn how to love again. We practice new habits. We practice new behaviors. We rehearse the story of the gospel week by week. We sing to each other. We encourage each other. We give each other ample opportunities to practice forgiveness to practice grace, to practice mercy. And as an aside, you'll never be able to grow in love like this if you treat church as a once-a-week meeting rather than as a new community that is now fundamental to your new identity. This is why we invented parish groups, so that you don't just come to church, you practice being the church, learning to love God, love neighbor, and love each other. Jesus said the world will know us by our love, our unity. And so go to school, friends. Go to school. So admit your failure, go to school, and finally meet love personified. Did you notice how Paul personifies love in this chapter? Look, look at the chapter. Did you notice that? He doesn't say, to be loving is to be patient, or to be loving is to be kind. He, is ta- he uses love as a subject. He's, he's talking about love as if it's a, 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 an agent with a will and a, and a soul and, and a mind. He's, 
that love does these things. It acts patient. It moves towards another. The reason why Paul is talking about love as a person here is, I think, it's not far to imagine, he is thinking about a person. And you don't have to stretch very far to think about what person he's thinking of. Karl Barth said, if you want to understand this chapter, you must take the name Jesus Christ and substitute it every time the word love appears. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus did not envy or boast. Jesus is not arrogant or rude. Jesus did not insist on his own way. He was not resentful. He did not count our sins against us. He does not rejoice at your falling away. He rejoices in the truth. Jesus always protects. He always trusts. He always hopes. He always perseveres. Jesus Christ never fails. And if you, listen, friends, if you just take this as a checklist, if you take this as sort of a collection of virtues that you can just sort of muster up the energy to do, it will crush you. And you will stay in that place of failure. But if you take this chapter as a picture of Jesus, a portrait of love himself, then meditating on this chapter can be transformative. It can change you. Why? Because to really learn the way of love, we need to be healed of our self-centeredness. We need to be healed of the ways that we've been hurt and beat up and not loved and abused. We need our fragile egos to be filled with love because we cannot give what we do not have. Just like little children only learn to love by being loved, and little kids who have never been hugged or touched or snuggled do not know how to love another person. Kids, your parents are right about the bullies in the playground. They're acting the way they do because they have not been loved. In the same way, we cannot give what we do not have. We cannot love another when we do not have love ourselves, and we can have it. We can have love supreme, like John Coltrane wrote about. Love supreme, personified, everything written here in the person of Jesus for us. And this is where De Baton gets it wrong. He closes his article in the New York Times by writing this. So stop looking for a being that can meet your deepest needs. The darkest truth of love distracts us from the core truth of our existential loneliness, that we are irredeemably alone and that we will never be fully understood. It is true on one human level, but thanks be to God, it is not true. It is not true on an eternal level that there is one, there is one who can truly meet our deepest needs. There is one who can satisfy our deepest yearnings. There is one who can satiate our empty egos and fill up our self-centered hearts. There is one who can be for us love supreme, the Lord Jesus himself. And so this is what we do. We keep repenting. We keep admitting our failure to love. We keep going to school. We keep learning how to love with one another. And we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, love supreme, as Wesley wrote. Jesus, thou art all compassion. Pure, unbounded love thou art. Visit us with thy salvation. Enter every trembling heart. Let's pray for that love. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are the personification of love. We admit our failures. I admit my own failures. We admit the failures of this church. We admit the failures of our own personal lives, that we have measured our lives with the wrong metrics, that we have masked our absence of love through our busyness and our religious activity. 
that we have forgotten the way. We confess our self-centered hearts that seek to use other people and other things for our own self-gratification. We confess of our self-centeredness and we ask for Jesus again to show us the love supreme. That we might be renewed, that we might be filled up, that we might give to others what we now have through him. Help us as a church to be one. Unify us around the love of Jesus so that people will say, look how they love each other. Look how they love each other. We pray that in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.